Well, loved ones, last week, together in our ABCs through the Reformed Theology, we looked at R is for resurrection and renewal. And we considered together how the bodily resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ serves as a sort of paradigm for the promise of God of the reconciliation and renewal of all of God's good creation, most especially our own bodies resurrected from the dead, but also making all things new, as Jesus declares at the end of Revelation. So in other words, as surely as Jesus himself rose bodily from the dead, so surely will our own bodies be raised up from the dead on the last day, and so surely shall all of God's good creation be raised up in glory. And so we looked at that kind of final state of glory that is promised to us and secured for us by the resurrection of Christ. And that final state of resurrection life for believers is, in fact, the end result of what we are considering tonight, namely the process of sanctification. So sanctification is leading us to that great and glorious end of resurrected life. And so we'll look tonight at S is for sanctification. And our catechetical reading is from the Belgic Confession of Faith, Article 24. So let's find that together. The back of our Trinity Psalter hymnals. That is found on page 863. So Article 24 the sanctification of sinners. I'll read this for us. We believe that this true faith produced in man by the hearing of God's word and by the work of the Holy Spirit regenerates him and makes him a new man, causing him to live the new life and freeing him from the slavery of sin. Therefore, far from making people cold toward living in a pious and holy way, this justifying faith Quite to the contrary, so works within them that apart from it, they will never do a thing out of love for God, but only out of love for themselves and fear of being condemned. So then, it is impossible for this holy faith to be unfruitful in a human being, seeing that we do not speak of an empty faith, but of what Scripture calls faith working through love, which leads a man to do of himself the works that God has commanded in his word. These works, proceeding from the good root of faith, are good and acceptable to God, since they are all sanctified by his grace. Yet, they do not count toward our justification. For by faith in Christ, we are justified even before we do good works. Otherwise, they could not be good, any more than the fruit of a tree could be good if the tree is not good in the first place. So then... We do good works, but not for merit. For what would we merit? Rather, we are indebted to God for the good works we do, and not he to us, since it is he who works in us, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Thus, keeping in mind what is written, when you have done all that is commanded you, then you shall say, we are unworthy servants. We have done what is what it was our duty to do. Yet we do not wish to deny that God rewards good works, but it is by his grace that he crowns his gifts. Moreover, although we do good works, we do not base our salvation on them, for we cannot do any work that is not defiled by our flesh and also worthy of punishment. And even if we could point to one, 
Memory of a single sin is enough for God to reject that work. So we would always be in doubt, tossed back and forth without any certainty. And our poor consciences would be tormented constantly if they did not rest on the merit of the suffering and death of our Savior. With that catechetical reading, let's, let's pause and ask God to bless our time of consideration this evening. Lord, as we consider this great topic of sanctification, what it means and what you call us to now in Christ by your spirit through your word, we ask that you would equip us this evening with ears to hear, that you would illuminate our our minds, uh, shine abroad your light so that we might understand rightly and apply in our hearts and our lives these truths that we are considering from your word. Bless us with a greater understanding of this great subject so that we might grow in sanctification. This we ask in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. Well, let's start off with a definition of this term, which is a big term, sanctification. Sanctification is the transformative process that the Holy Spirit himself works in believers in order to conform them into the image, the perfect image of Christ, taking them from one degree of glory to the next degree of glory until we reach that final state of glorification. So it's this transformative process process that the Holy Spirit is the agent of bringing us to that perfect image of Christ. Earlier in our series in the ABCs of Reformed Theology, we considered how the Father is the primary agent of creation, that the Son is the primary agent of redemption, and so too we can say along with the Belgic Confession of Faith in Article 9, that the Holy Spirit is our sanctifier by his indwelling in our hearts. And so the Holy Spirit is the, the primary agent of our sanctification. The great uh, Reformed theologian, Louis Burkhoff, says this about the Reformers and their understanding of sanctification, this very helpful uh, explanation. He says, the Reformers made a clear difference or distinction between justification and sanctification, considering the former, that is justification, as a legal act of divine grace that affects the judicial status of a man, and the latter, sanctification, as a moral or recreative work that changes the inner nature of man. But while they made a careful distinction between the two, they also accentuated their inseparable relationship. Although they had a deep conviction that man only by faith is justified, they also understood that the faith that justifies is not alone. Justification is immediately followed by sanctification since God sends the spirit of his own son into the hearts of his own as soon as they are justified. And that spirit is the spirit of sanctification. And so we, we see that these two great uh, these two great blessings that God has given us of justification and sanctification should be distinguished. We should see the distinction between the two, but they are really inseparable. And this transformative process, as we just heard, is the immediate and necessary response of true faith. At the same time, we have to recognize that we will never reach in this life the end goal of perfection. We will never arrive here in this life. 
The Heidelberg Catechism helpfully states on question and answer 114 that can those converted to God keep the commandments perfectly? Can we arrive at perfection in this life? And the answer is no. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they do begin to live according to all, not only some, but all of God's commandments. And this, this is a question and answer I always come back to for my own soul. It encourages me as I evaluate my own life and progress in the faith and see my small obedience in life. The catechism there is saying that that's the normal. That's the norm. That's the standard for us in the Christian life. Even the holiest men have only a small beginning of obedience. And so we will never arrive at perfection in this life, the perfect image of Christ. Nevertheless, that should not dissuade us from pursuing holiness. It should not keep us from striving after it. The impossibility of perfection should not discourage us from being active and zealous in our growth and pursuit of holiness. And that's why in the next question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism, it says, since no one in this life can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God want them to be preached so pointedly? And the answer is this, the second part of the answer is this, so that we may never stop striving and never stop praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit so that we may be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach our goal, perfection. And so he wants us to hear over and over again the Ten Commandments and God's law so that we continue to strive with all our efforts and ask God for the Holy Spirit to strengthen us to pursue that holiness. So God doesn't want us to ever stop striving or praying. The Holy Spirit, in fact, when he comes and regenerates our hearts, and gives us faith initially, we can think of it as he plants within us, when, within each and every believer, a seed, a seed that wants to grow and will grow in every true believer. What is that seed? The seed is the desire to be renewed more and more after God's image, to strive for conformity to the image of Christ. And that desire is not equally strong in every believer, but it is always present in every true believer who has been gifted with the Holy Spirit. That desire is deep down within each and every one of us. Now, what's the end goal of sanctification? What are we striving for? We already considered it. The perfection of our human nature, both in body and in soul. And that final state is often called our glorification. And so the theologian John Murray says this, glorification is the final phase of the application of redemption. It is what completes the process that begins with the effectual calling. It completes the process of sanctification. It is actually the culmination of the entire redemptive process. And so that is the end goal that we're striving for. And listen to the Apostle Paul after considering those thoughts together. Look at, listen to what he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8 to 12. You can turn there if you'd like. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8 to 12, where he says this. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And when he refers to everything as loss, he's referring to his prior kind of resume 
of religiosity, all the good works that he was trying to accrue and build up in order to present to God and say, here I am, accept me. And he says, all that rubbish, I count it as loss. For what? For the surpassing worth of now what I have by knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So that that alien righteousness, that righteousness which comes from outside of us, the righteousness of Christ that is a credit to us that we receive by faith alone. And he says, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And now listen to this. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So Paul himself, the great apostle Paul, claims that he had not yet arrived at perfection. He too, I'm sure, would have said that he had only a small beginning of the obedience that God requires of us. Nevertheless, we find that he was pressing on, pressing on to make it his own, that perfection, conformity to the image of Christ. Why? What's the reason that he stated there? He says, because Christ Jesus has already made me his own. He wasn't pressing on in order to win Jesus' love for him. He was pressing on precisely because he already had Jesus' love for him in full. He gave up his prior works-based religion in order to receive the free gift of Jesus' righteousness for him that depends not on works, but on faith alone. And that, as he's saying here, it did not make him slack or slothful in his pursuit of holiness. To the contrary, he's saying it made him all the more zealous, excited to press on in love and obedience to God. And so we see there in the, in the example of the Apostle Paul how understanding the great, the good news of the gospel really should stir us up in, in desire to pursue holiness all the more. Now, how does this perspective, this Christian and biblical perspective on sanctification, how does it differ from the Roman Catholic view of salvation? Well, in, in many ways. But Rome, Rome has confused justification and sanctification with each other, kind of conflated the two. According to Rome, Roman Catholic theology, justification and sanctification practically refer to the same work or process by which a believer increases his own internal righteousness before God in order to merit entry into eternal life. And so we would say that Roman Catholic theology has really flipped these two on their heads. In Roman Catholic theology, sanctification leads to one's justification. So that internal process of growing holy by your own striving results in the end, in your legal declaration that you are righteous based on your own merits, what you have accrued by the grace of God, right? And this is a works-based religion, which in, in the end is not really good news, but more like good advice. It's not good news about what God has done to save us, 
but rather what you can do to save yourself. Now, by contrast, in comparison, the Christian and Reformed uh, approach to this topic is this. Instead of sanctification leading to justification, justification leads to sanctification. So that legal declaration that we hear in the gospel announcement that you are righteous right now by faith alone, based on the merits of Christ alone, that results in your actual growth in holiness and righteousness internally. And we see that this is not a works-based religion, but a grace-based religion in every aspect, uh, which is very good news about what God has done to save us and how he promises now to continue to renew us until we arrive at that glorification, our perfection in Christ. And if we don't, if we don't understand this, if we don't believe the gospel of God's grace, the Belgic Confession we read says that people will never do a thing out of love for God, but only out of love for themselves and out of fear of being condemned. And what, what Guido de Bray is saying there, the author of the Belgic Confession, is that in a works-based religion, people are not really loving God freely with their obedience. It's not really out of love for God. Instead, they are working and obeying in order to save their own skins. By contrast, we obey God and pursue holiness, not in order to save our own skins, but because God has already saved our skin, our souls, and our bodies. And so our pursuit of holiness obedience flows out of gratitude for the grace that God has showed us, not out of fear of condemnation. So we see that clear distinction, the clear contrast between Roman Catholic theology and what we hold to in the Reformed tradition, according to the scriptures. Now, sometimes Reformed theologians also talk about definitive sanctification, which is a a helpful topic to consider in relation to this. Definitive sanctification refers to God's act once and for all of claiming us and calling us saints. And because of this concept that we'll kind of consider here, it makes sense how the Apostle Paul can write to a very unhealthy and in many ways troubled and sinful church in Corinth, saying to the church there, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. So even though the Corinthians themselves were still a long way away from internal Holiness, And all you have to do is read the letter to, to see that, to see all of the problems that existed, all of the sin that still dwelt in their midst. That nonetheless, Paul says here in the very beginning of the letter that Christ had sanctified them. Past tense. They were already sanctified in a sense. They were already set apart from the world and consecrated to God, which is what the idea of sanctification means. Paul says, because of that reality, because God has done that and set you apart from the world and called you as his own, therefore he calls you to be holy. In other words, God has already set you apart. Therefore, now live in a way that is apart from the world's ways. What Paul is saying, in other words, is if you belong to Christ by true faith, by virtue of your union with Jesus, God already considers you to be a saint. United to Christ. You are one who has been set apart from the world and consecrated to his service. 
That is who you are in Christ. Now go live accordingly. Live in light of that reality about what God has said of you. Now, let us consider this. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever thought what your dying wish would be on your deathbed? You know, your family and friends maybe come and and are with you. What would you want your family and friends to commit to? Commit to doing in your absence. What would you ask of them? And I think if we asked that question of ourselves and answered honestly, we would really find what is very dear and important to our hearts, what is most dear and important. What we want our loved ones and our children to carry on and continue doing. So with that said, what was Jesus's dying wish? What was Jesus's wish and request? And we don't have to guess. In the Gospel of John, he tells us, he says in John 17, 16 to 19, in that great high priestly prayer right before he went to the cross to be crucified, he prays to the Father and says of his own, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. That was, in a sense, his dying wish, that his own would be sanctified by the truth. And he was willing to consecrate himself, to give himself up in order to make that not only a possibility, but a reality. John Calvin comments on this, saying, Jesus has presented himself to the Father for us so that we can be renewed to true holiness by his Spirit. Although this sanctification belongs to the whole life of Christ, his setting himself apart and giving himself up to the Father, yet the highest illustration of it was given in the sacrifice of his death, because then he showed himself as the true high priest, consecrating the temple, the altar, and all the vessels and all the people by the power of the Spirit. And so what John Calvin is showing us there is he's connecting what Jesus said rightly, to the metaphor of the temple in the Old Testament and the Jewish temple. And it's useful here to consider definitive sanctification. It's cultic language because when the high priest consecrated the various instruments of the temple, the vessels themselves, those different instruments and tools that were used in the temple service, the vessels did not change into something else, into a different substance, right? But after their consecration by the high priest, they were considered sacred and ready for service to God, ready for service in his holy temple. And that's the same for us as believers. When the Holy Spirit unites us to Jesus by faith, he gives us that new principle of life. And we are justified by the merits of Christ, even though we are still sinners. It hasn't, his consecration of us, his sanctification of us in that definitive sense did not change us as if we immediately became purified from all our sins. But in Christ, we, are, we were sanctified. In that sense, we are now considered holy and ready for holy use in God's spiritual temple. And so Christ has sanctified us, set us apart from the world and consecrated us for holy service to God in this world. My professor, uh, our professor back in seminary, Michael Horton says, we are holy, therefore we must be holy. 
In other words, in Christ, God has definitively consecrated us to himself. And now by the spirit, he calls us to progressively live in that reality, to live it out, to now be holy as he has called us holy in Christ. And so that leads us to progressive sanctification. This is a process. It's ongoing and it's progressive. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says this, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And so we see that progressively the spirit of God is moving us from one degree of glory to another as we behold the glory of God in the gospel of Christ. And Michael Horton says again, the gospel, it announces not only our justification, but our participation in the power of the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. Therefore, we cannot look to Christ first for our justification. And then when it comes to the Christian life, sanctification, Look away from Christ towards our own progress. So as we heard this morning from Pastor Daniel, Jesus is not just the author of our faith, but he is also the finisher of our faith. So it's not as if we start the race, the Christian faith, by looking at Jesus in order to be saved, in order to be justified. And then for the rest of the race, well, we shift our eyes to to look at our own selves and our own progress. No, far from it. We are to keep our eyes on him for the whole duration of the race, every step of the way, looking to Christ. I was thinking of how, you know, sometimes in horse races, the horses have those blinders on, right? These blinders. Why? So that they can keep their eyes focused ahead on the track that's before them. So they're not distracted from the race at hand. If only we, we as Christians, could put on blinders to keep us focused on Jesus, the whole duration of our race, lest we be overly discouraged by looking at ourselves or looking at the world around us, you know, keeping our eyes fixed on Christ. Now, why is it important to keep our eyes on Jesus? Well, as the Belgic article says in the end, because resting on the merit of the suffering and death of our Savior alone can speak peace to our poor consciences, our conscience that otherwise would be always constantly in doubt, tossed back and forth without certainty and tormented by fear of punishment. So if we're looking at ourselves, if we're navel gazers, constantly looking at our own faults and failures and weaknesses, well, we're going to be completely tossed in doubt, back and forth and uncertain and have fear of punishment. But when we look at Christ, well, Christ's blood and righteousness reminds us that despite our failures in our own sanctification, that the merits of Christ have already secured for us our justification and have guaranteed that we will arrive and be glorified in the end. And that's why, as we heard this morning, Jesus is called both the author and the finisher of our faith. The finisher of our faith. Jesus doesn't want us to just start by faith, looking at him. He doesn't want us to just start and not finish the race. No, Christ not only wants his own to be fully justified by his merits, but he wants his own to be fully sanctified by his spirit. So again, Michael Horton says, in progressive sanctification, our focus should not be on the visibility of our own experience and growth, but on Christ as he has given to us in the gospel. 
So we always must set our eyes on Christ for the whole duration of the Christian faith in our sanctification as well. I love how the early Reformed theologians, they spoke of what Christ accomplished and the, the great benefits that he accomplished. And they said that he, he gave us and accomplished dual benefits, two benefits. That is on the cross, Jesus bought two primary benefits that he now gives to the elect by his Holy Spirit. One, justification, and two, sanctification. These two benefits are given to each and every one of the elect. So that means you cannot find one benefit in a person and not the other. So you can't find someone who's truly being sanctified who has not already been justified. And you can't find someone who has truly been justified who is not currently being sanctified. They always go together. As the reformer Martin Luther said, although we are justified by faith alone, this faith is never alone, but is always accompanied by love and hope. And so they always go hand in hand, these two benefits that Christ has won for us. Even though God declares us as righteous in Christ by faith alone, apart from our works, we see that our faith will always produce the fruit of love and good works. As we considered a few weeks back, that golden chain of salvation in Romans 8.30 implies this truth, that all those whom God justified, he will also sanctify until they are glorified. And that is a process, that is a chain that cannot be broken. That will be the case for everyone justified by faith in Christ. You will arrive in glorification. You will be perfected by the Holy Spirit. And that's why the Belgic states here that it is impossible for this holy faith in a believer to be unfruitful in a human being, seeing that we do not speak of an empty faith, but what of scripture calls faith working through love, which leads a man to do of himself the works that God has commanded in his word. And so it always produces fruit of righteousness and, and good works in a believer, this true faith, this justifying faith. But at the same time, we remember what we considered earlier, right? That even our best works in this life will be stained with sin. Uh, even as we considered, even the holiest men have only a small beginning of obedience to God. And so therefore, don't lose heart. And remember, keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. And here, lastly, kind of let's consider the perseverance and preservation of the saints in this process that it's evident from the scriptures from the holy scriptures that the elect will always persevere in their faith to the very end because god has promised to do that by his holy spirit because of god's sovereign grace and salvation it is impossible for one of his chosen ones to lose their justification to fall away from grace it is impossible in philippians 1 6 paul says i am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So the Spirit of God, he will bring to completion the good work that he has begun in you. The faith that he put in you, he will continue to grow and strengthen until you arrive at last in glory. And even if at the point of death we are still far from perfect, which will be the case for all of us, God will use death itself in that process to purge us from all our sins. Paul says in Ephesians 2.10 as well that we are his workmanship. And that word there can be translated his masterpiece. It's kind of this artwork, right? Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, 
which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. And so the Holy Spirit is presented as this kind of artist, this great master artist and wisest of all. And he makes everything beautiful. His finishing touches are perfect. And sometimes I, I paint and dabble and paint at home, but often I get frustrated with myself and the painting process, right? And so I quit and I have, if you go up into our, one of the rooms in our house, in the closet, you'll find a, a few canvases where I've started but haven't finished, right? Because I got frustrated and gave up, right? Maybe one day I'll come back to them. I, I, that's what I tell myself. But the Holy Spirit, he never leaves. He never leaves unfinished artwork. He always perfects the elect until they arrive at conformity to Christ. And as Isaiah 42, 3 through 4 says so beautifully, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. What that means, loved ones, is that he won't give up on you. He will finish what he started every time. Even when you are ready to give up on yourself, he does not grow faint. He does not get discouraged. Why? Because he is committed to this, to work until he establishes justice in all the earth, including in your own heart and life. As Paul says in Romans eight thirty nine, this great assurance that we have no created thing nothing can separate us from the love of god that is in christ jesus our lord once you're in his love you can never be torn away from it it is forever and so what will be the end of our sanctification it's what we considered earlier he will bring us to that glorious end of our glorification what will it be? We considered it last week, right? The resurrection of our own bodies and the renewal of God's good creation. And 2 Peter 1.4 says this, that God has given us his wonderful and precious promises so that you may become partakers of the divine nature. So this is another way of referring to this final stage of glorification. In his commentary, Calvin explains it in this way. He says, that we will be partakers of divinity and blessed with immortality and glory to be as if we are one with God to the extent that our creaturely abilities allow. Regardless of empty speculation, we must be satisfied with this one thing, that the image of God in holiness and righteousness has been restored to us for this purpose so that we may become partakers of eternal life and glory to the extent necessary for our complete happiness. And so we have this great goal set before us, this great promise that we will arrive at full conformity to the image of God. In that sense, partakers of the divine nature. In the resurrection, God will fully restore us, elevating us to the fullness of what it means to be human. Horton says, instead of making us more than human, Grace saves us and frees humans to be more human, finally glorifying and enjoying God forever. And that great glorification, how will it happen? The Holy Spirit, who is our sanctifier, the one who is the divine agent of this work of sanctification, he will complete and finish the work, bringing that full plan of God's redemption to an end and applying all the saving benefits of Christ to the elect until the entire cosmos is renewed by the power of Jesus' resurrection 
And what will be the purpose of that grand finale? The end of the story, the purpose is so that the father will grant the dying wish of his son, that we will be sanctified completely and fully to the praise of his glorious grace. So with that goal set before us, let us continue to set our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, with the assurance that the Holy Spirit, he will take us there, he will bring us there all the way home to glorification, to perfection in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that despite our weaknesses and despite our failures in the Christian life, in the small obedience that we have, that Lord, you call us to not look to our own selves, lest we be overly discouraged, but to look to Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, and to trust in your promises that you will finish the work that you have started in us, that you will indeed move us from one degree of glory to the next until we arrive at last in glory with you to the praise of your glorious grace. Lord, we ask that you continue in each and every one of our hearts and lives to sanctify us, to set us apart and prepare us for your holy service in this world and in service and love to one another. Make the faith that you have given to us fruitful in our lives and continue to build us up in faith working in love. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Loved ones, we'll receive now the parting benediction of God, and then we'll have a time of discussion afterwards. So hear this as God sends you back out into the world uh, with his promise, presence, and blessing upon you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.